we've done a number of other acquisitions that have really been focused on areas that are core to NASDAQ as a public company, but wouldn't be necessarily core to what someone would think about as an exchange operator. There's a lot that might surprise you about NASDAQ as a company, specifically their strategy and direction. We're really a technology company that owns exchanges. You know, being a public company can be really hard and small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. And over the last 20 plus years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market, the media and other stakeholders. We'll demystify these increasingly complex groups in an effort to provide insight to private, public and sponsor-backed companies. Our hope is to clarify the path to success and position every company to unlock its true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. For public companies, shareholders may turn over, but the exchange you're listed on is constant. They aren't just static marketplaces, rather, they have a vested interest in your success through the IPO and beyond. NASDAQ has all sorts of resources available to companies, regulatory, market intelligence, opportunities for visibility, and tools to help you find and reach the right buyers. NASDAQ has earned a reputation as a trailblazer, pioneering the world's first electronic exchange. And a half a century later, NASDAQ continues to innovate on behalf of their listed companies. Our friend Bob McCooey has been with NASDAQ since 2006 and is currently the Senior Vice President of the Listing Services Unit, managing relationships with companies throughout their corporate life cycle. He's also responsible for developing business internationally in Asia Pacific and Latin America. Previously, Bob ran the new listings and capital markets group at NASDAQ, managing listing efforts for over 3,500 companies. Before that, he built a highly regarded brokerage firm, the Griswold Company, and led it for almost 20 years. He's been a member of the New York Stock Exchange Board of Executives and was chairman of the NYSE's Technology and Planning Oversight Committee. Bob knows the ins and outs of the exchanges better than almost anybody, and we sat down with him to discuss how the exchanges have evolved, what value NASDAQ can offer their listed companies, and how they're growing their global footprint. So I had kind of a, a different trajectory, I think, Tom, than most people do, and, and actually how you and Chad and John founded ICR. I mean, you had all worked in kind of corporate businesses. You'd worked on Wall Street. You saw something that could be done better. I came out and did the entrepreneurial thing first, which is, you know, most people do the entrepreneurial thing second or maybe second, third, and fourth. I was supposed to go actually and go work for a British brokerage firm. But in 1987, this little thing called the crash, you know, the first crash happened in that October as I was waiting for my working papers to come in and down 500 points. Scary. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Now 500 points is like an hour. Yeah, it's like nothing. Then it's back up 500 points uh, <laughs> later in the day. The firm I was going to work for was a very traditional 
British brokerage firm waiting for the working papers to come in. So as I was seeing all my Holy Cross colleagues go to work for EMC and other tech companies in Europe, I was just sitting patiently waiting for my papers to come in. The crash happens, and I realized that going to London was not going to was not going to materialize. So early that next year, I started a you know one man brokerage firm that uh, over the succeeding nineteen years, I was able to build from a one man shop to fifty employees, you know, good amount of revenue, and pretty well known in the agency execution business through a variety of factors, uh, including the desire for our customers for us to do more and more for less and less. Technological advances that were taking order flow away from the New York Stock Exchange, as well as kind of the regulatory environment that really favored the larger institutions, the larger broker dealers over the smaller ones like us. It became clear to me that I needed to change careers and through a kind of weird serendipitous meeting with the CEO of NASDAQ at the time, Bob Greifeld. They had an opening looking for someone to start a capital markets business and sounded like something interesting and challenging. And so I moved from, as I said, doing the entrepreneurial thing, building a business over 19 years to going to work for a company that was still kind of in its infancy in terms of the inflection point in which the business was. Because in 2006, when I joined, NASDAQ was really one that was focused on listings and trading. And not that listings and trading are less important now, but on the trading side of the business, we trade a lot more than just equities, which is basically all we did when I joined. And then through a series of transactions, NASDAQ has become the market leader in providing technology to exchanges around the world. We have a huge data and index business and growing with our acquisition of Verifin last year in the anti-financial crimes area for basically for banks and others who need that kind of service. And then we've grown our offering on the listing side from just purely offering a listing on NASDAQ to a service model where we provide a whole host of corporate services to help companies in their investor relations, corporate governance, and communications areas to help them, you know, we say, be better public companies. One of the things I wanted to ask you is you are you know so many people in your network and it's so impressive when a private equity professional or a CEO, CFO, when they're kind of evaluating the listing process, they're going public. What do you think the biggest thing they miss is? You know, like in other words, what are they not appreciating about NASDAQ and the services or how does that interaction go at the point of decision? I think one of the things they miss or probably there's two of them. One is the kind of long-term focus that we have. So for us, it's, this is not a transaction. This is, as my colleagues like to say, the kind of like a marriage. The IPO day is the wedding and uh, the marriage is every day you are a public company and which feeds into the second thing that they miss, which is our focus on developing these services that help companies to identify shareholders, to make sure that they're in front of the right shareholders, that we have a platform that allows companies to log their engagements with those shareholders so they're chronicled. And we just think that those are some of the services that are really important as companies are really focused on being a public company. It's very different if you're a private equity-backed company that has 
basically one shareholder, maybe a few internal stakeholders that own part of the company and moving from that one shareholder to thousands of shareholders and different institutions and going public at 20 and then months later, your stock's at 30. And you know that some of those people that bought at 20 are going to sell at 30 and you need to replace all those shareholders with new shareholders and doing it again at 50 and at 75 and every price point as your stock continues to increase, you're constantly engaging with a brand new shareholder base and telling your story. And we've been focused on on doing that. And I think that sometimes that gets lost in all the, the glitz and the hype around IPO day in the same way as people do focus on the wedding day. And not to say that IPO day is not important. It is tremendously important. And we spend a lot of time working with companies to make sure it's a spectacular event to amplify their emergence as a public company. But I think to your question is sometimes they miss the fact that when you get to day two and day 22 and 2022, you're a public company and you're listed on an exchange and is your exchange being a really good partner to you? And those that's the area that we really focus on. Yeah. You know, it's so true that the bankers and uh, the lawyers and a lot of people advising management through that IPO process, pricing is kind of the finish line, right? And there's a whole group of people that move on to the next transaction, not ICR and not NASDAQ. So, you know, the idea of a long-term partnership is absolutely critical through the ups and downs of being a public company. And I would say most companies, while they're terrific operators, and they know how to build their business, there is an art to the stock market and understanding it and knowing what you may not know. And I think that's where where NASDAQ comes in with that level of support over a really long period of time, right? No doubt. We always focus on the fact that most stocks go up on IPO day and most management teams are really happy. We don't want them. I always say, don't give us any credit for the fact that your stock went up today because I'm not really that interested in getting the blame when your stock goes down. 100%. I was going to say the honeymoon can be either really good or really bad. (laughs) It will go down. There will be a day where the stock will go down. And we didn't really have anything to do with that. We provide the platform for efficient trading of securities every single day. But what we What we are really focused on, manically focused on, is delivering an experience to that listed company, whether that's an IPO experience, whether that's an analyst day coming in and talking to investors at our market site in Times Square, whether those are the services that we provide to target investors, whether that's them having to deal with one of the new focuses by all investors, which is ESG. And three or four years ago, You and I certainly wouldn't even have mentioned ESG if we were doing a podcast like this, but that's such an important part of a company's life today is understanding how they are dealing with the the EVS and the G and how they are making sure they're communicating to their investors, you know, with scorecard on the metrics of how they're doing. We try to make sure we focus on those things. It's not easy being a a public company, let alone a board member or a CEO, and you better be buttoned up on that stuff because it's all becoming part of the job uh, requirement for sure. And like you're saying, ESG kind of used to be G, and now it's full ESG. And, you know, companies or small companies in particular, I think, are insecure about that, you know, and feel like, hey, maybe we don't have the resources to 
really, you know, create a huge glossy report on it. But every company, my guess, is doing a lot of good things. And it's just a matter of teasing that out as part of the stakeholder story and certainly shareholder story. Sure. If you're a trillion dollar company, it's easy for you to have several people in your IR department. If you are a smaller company or a lot of the investors, now it's a SMID, right? Small and mid cap company. They need the help of ICR. They need your help through the IPO to help them to navigate with these brand new shareholders that they are unaware of how to communicate with. And to your point, they have very small teams. They all run lean. If they are a biotech company, they could be 10 people. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to have one of those people be dedicated to IR is virtually impossible. People that are building technology businesses, yes, they're sometimes large in terms of the numbers of people, but they're engineers building amazing products or consumer retail companies that are really focused on what they should be, which is what the next cycle is and what the you know, fall and winter fashion line looks like and not be focused on necessarily communicating with investors. And we recognized years ago, actually just before I joined NASDAQ in 2005, NASDAQ began the acquisition of their first service offering in this area. And then we've done nothing but continue to grow them. Technology's improved and markets have gone global, the need for small local stock exchanges has obviously decreased. Larger exchanges like NASDAQ have been consolidating, purchasing smaller players to gain access to strategic markets and broaden their technology offerings. I asked Bob about consolidation and other trends among the exchanges. Well, it's interesting, Tom, because I think early in our careers, there was uh, this whole idea in the early to mid-90s about the the global exchange and the what they used to call the the moving of the book around the world, and that uh, someone could trade the U.S. and then trade uh, Asia and then trade Europe and then back to the U.S. and could there be a consolidated exchange group? And there was some discussion back then. And then in the two thousands, some of those things came to occur. Obviously. New York Stock Exchange went public through a reverse merger with a public company called Archipelago. And then they eventually, years later, got bought by the Intercontinental Exchange, which is a large derivatives exchange. We at NASDAQ bought some domestic exchanges. So many people, probably some of these people on the podcast don't know that we bought the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, we bought the Boston Stock Exchange, and then we bought a large exchange operator in Northern Europe, in the Nordics and Baltics called OMX. And we actually became NASDAQ OMX for most of the past 12 years since then. And part of that was really focused on the listings business. They've got a fantastic listings and trading business in the Nordics. And another part of it was the market technology business that I referenced earlier, where we provide exchange trading technology to 130 different exchanges around the world. And one of the growth areas for us over the past few years has been providing regulatory technology. So not only do we provide the matching engine, and we would argue the finest matching engine in the world, in fact, the largest IPO ever, which was the IPO of Saudi Aramco on Tadaval in uh, Saudi Arabia was done on NASDAQ technology. 
but we also provide the regulatory technology that everyone needs. And whether you're an exchange or whether you're a bank or a broker um, or a regulator, you need a sophisticated technology to surveil the markets. And uh, we're the largest provider of that. So it has been for us and for a lot of the other exchange operators, there's been consolidation in exchanges. So for example, the LSE bought one of the Italian exchanges years ago, but then their next move was not to buy another exchange. Their next move was to buy Refinitiv, which is a primarily a data provider, the old Thomson Reuters yep. data business for $28 billion. So as we've been looking for acquisitions and we bought a company called Verifin, as I said, is in the anti-financial crimes area. We closed on that earlier this year. We've done Solovis and Evestment and a number of other acquisitions that have really been focused on areas that are core to NASDAQ as a public company, but wouldn't be necessarily core to what someone would think about as an exchange operator. We're really a technology company that owns exchanges. And uh, we've been able to grow through our acquisition of different technology businesses that are complementary and support the businesses that we're in on the exchange side. Yeah, well, you're certainly doing something right. I know it's been a huge year for NASDAQ so far. I hope I get this right. Almost 400 new IPOs, including seven of the 10 largest. I think 14 switches where companies, including Honeywell, have, have come over. It must be pretty cool and exciting to be in the middle of all of that. Maybe you can share, and I know you've met some incredible people in your career and, and particularly in NASDAQ is running kind of the, the listings and, and getting companies to kind of go public with you guys. What are some of the personal highlights for you? Some of the companies that went with NASDAQ after your counsel and support that you just thought were, you know, really cool to work on? Well, I, I certainly have to put Facebook at the top of the list. I mean, I always love watching the social network where there are a, a number of scenes at what was their uh, University Avenue office, which was their first office in Palo Alto. And I literally, with one of my colleagues, had been in there a couple times sitting on beanbag chairs in <laughs> one of their breakout rooms. And working with them through their IPO, one of the largest IPOs of all time, just such an amazing company, just broke through a trillion dollars worth of market cap. That certainly is is a highlight. I would never argue that I know or was close to Mark Zuckerberg, but uh, certainly working with their team. Every time they show IPO pictures of, of the Tesla IPO, I happen to be standing next to Elon and I worked with Elon and Deepak and the entire Tesla team on their IPO. So that was... Uh, super cool for a company that is you know, slowly but surely changing the world. And I was able to work with their sister company on the battery business and uh, solar business. So that was a lot of fun, actually, with Elon's cousins. I have been able to really start a business within NASDAQ from scratch or a region because NASDAQ had not done well in Latin America. In fact, we had never before, three years ago, had never had a company from Latin America, excuse me, from Brazil. We had had companies from Latin America, but never had a company from Brazil list with us. And I was able to work with Stone and XP, which is kind of, which is the largest brokerage firm in Latin America. 
one of the fastest growing businesses down there. I've been able to work with four different ed tech companies, including Arco, which was the first company from Brazil to IPO on NASDAQ. And then we've had two of the alternative asset managers list with us earlier this year. So we have a tremendous, we've had tremendous success down there. I think we're really moving into the NASDAQ generation within Latin America and they appreciate all the support. And then I threw another fluke in my career. Tom, I ended up running our Asia PAC listings business starting in 2008, literally right after the Beijing Olympics. And that has been through some Obviously, accelerated growth where we listed 100 companies in three years between 2008 and the end of 2010. Some bumpy times later on, but standing in Shanghai and now will be three years ago this month to welcome Pindodo, which is now a $175 billion company. Their IPO was at $25 billion and, and they're trading at $175 billion today. Standing there to welcome them to NASDAQ with a, a live a remote bell ceremony, and then later that year be able to celebrate C-Trips listing the 15th anniversary listing on NASDAQ was certainly an amazing six months for me between those two experiences of working with uh, those companies and really seeing the great entrepreneurs from all over the world. I mean, I could talk about ones recently, such as uh, Grab, which will list with us very soon, or ones that I got to work with early on in my career that have been you know, tremendous performers and continue to grow. And we've been able to now have the five largest companies in the U.S. capital markets all listed on NASDAQ. And you know, when I came to NASDAQ in 2006, I think we had one of the top 10 or maybe it was one of the top 15. And now we have, I think, the top five or six out of the top seven. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. And I, I'll never forget, you know, speaking of Facebook, I'll never forget that Barron's cover story after they went public. I think it had a thumbs down because the stock did go down like, uh, I don't know if it was right away, but it did, it might have gone down 15% from the IPO price. And then, you know, talk about a monster if you had uh, invested at that point or even at the IPO. That sounds totally thrilling. And to your point, every entrepreneur has a cool story. And if you're like a naturally curious person, you know, it, it's like the greatest job in the world, I'm sure. But speaking of your role and what you do every day, I feel like I've traveled a lot in the last 25 years for business, going to meet CEOs and things, but like you take things to a whole other level. How many, like at the peak, how many miles do you think you flew in your busiest year? Do you have any idea? Oh, well over 400,000. Yeah, that's ridiculous. But I mean, you're out there every day building relationships with private equity, with management teams, with venture capital, and you're doing that really around the world. I mean, I know we're kind of opening up. We're sitting here in mid-2021 and we're kind of opening back up. Where is your area of focus right now in your current job? I mean, are you going to be going down to South America and Asia? Is that really kind of, you know, you've kind of done a lot of building in the last 15 years at NASDAQ. Is that kind of the next frontier for you in terms of building the brand globally? Listen, Zoom is great. We were able to get a lot accomplished over the past now 18 months or so through Zoom and through WebEx and, and the ability for us to see each other and to do meetings virtually. But our business, especially my business, is a very people-intensive relationship business. And so there is 
a, a great need and desire for me to be back in Asia and certainly in Beijing and Shanghai and Hong Kong with the, the sponsor and banker community in front of our potential IPOs for later this year, early next year. I certainly think that especially Brazil, but really all over Latin America, there is a great interest that has been created of companies that want to go public in the U.S. And, and I know that they are a very much a relationship type of culture there. And so being in front of them, but I think it's really important to know people by spending time with them face to face. And that's how it works. <laughs> it's not that hard. I'm looking forward to going to, going to Hudson Yards and seeing a lot of the sponsors that have moved from 9 West 57th and Park Avenue to Hudson Yards and, and making sure we're walking the halls there and, and seeing the sponsors and talking about the new things that we're doing at NASDAQ to support their portfolio companies, to make sure we're spending time in, in Boston and, and San Francisco, but also uh, sure that we're on the road as soon as we possibly can be in a, in a safe way. The other thing I think that is the challenge right now is it's not just my desire and the U.S. starting to open up and being able to jump on a plane, but are people willing to accept us coming there? You know, can I go to Brazil? Can I go to Argentina? Can I go to Colombia? Can Hong Kong, Beijing? I'm almost desperate to get there, but I'm really not that interested in 14 and 20 day, one day quarantine periods. You know, it wouldn't be a podcast in 2021 if we didn't talk about SPACs. I asked Bob how NASDAQ approaches the SPAC market and if he thinks the structure is here to stay. Thanks for the question, Tom, because it, it is something I think that differentiates us is the fact that we have a very experienced and differentiated team who focus on SPACs. We've been doing SPACs since they first came to market in the early 90s, and I think that uh, SPAC has been a, um, you know, they've been around for a long time. A NASDAQ was in early. We did a lot of SPACs and we've done the most business combinations. Well over 80% of the business combinations in history have been, have been done with us. In fact, I was in with a, a couple of your clients last week, including EVGO on Friday to, to have a market celebration of their business combination. And there's no doubt for me that SPACs are here to stay. Will there be 10 to 20 of them listing every single week? Or as you said, will there continue to be high profile ones? Maybe. I don't know who, who they are going to be going forward, but I certainly feel like there's the IPO, there's direct listing, there's certainly trade sale from sponsor to sponsor, and then there is the SPAC route. And it's like, let's make a deal, door number one, door number two, and door number three, right? <laughs> exactly right. And it creates, for a sponsor who owns a portfolio company, it creates an amazing dynamic for them. Yeah. They always had the you know, dual track and now it's really a triple track. You know, IPO and direct listings are together because you can do either one or the other of those taking the company to the market. But you always had the trade sale available and now you have the SPAC option. That's and great. And figuring out how which one is going to create the best dynamic and best outcome for you is amazing. And so I, I think it's here to stay. And I think that there will be amazing successes 
coming out of SPAC business combinations. And just like not all IPOs work out, there will be some SPACs that won't, SPACs or SPAC business combinations that won't work out. It's like anything else. That, that shouldn't taint the entire asset class. Yeah. No, I think if you read the paper, you know, it's kind of the paper that's uh, dating myself. But if, you know, <laughs> if you're reading about it, you know, I think the media ha- has a bit of a negative slant at the moment, but I, I would agree with you. It's amazing optionality for anybody who owns an asset. And for NASDAQ, you're indifferent, right? You're there to help no matter how a company chooses to go, which is key. You're exactly right. My last question, Bob, and it's a personal question. I know that you're a huge fan of the English football club Tottingham Hotspur, which to be honest with you, I've never even heard of and that's shame on me. But how did that come about? I figured I'd throw this one in at the end, but I know you're like an over the top fan. Like how did that happen? So yes, I guess I'm an Uber fan or a yeah. crazed fan. I do live and die by my hotspurs. But yes, I became a Premier League fan and a Tottenham fan about a dozen years ago. I ended up wanting to go to a game. I went to a game through a friend who connected me to go to the match. When we were going to the match, we ended up being hosted by Daniel Levy, the chairman of Tottenham. Sat with him at his the pregame lunch. We watched the match. We went in during halftime, had drinks afterwards. Tottenham won 1-0 against Crystal Palace that day. Once you are a fan, you are a fan through thick and thin, and you will have thin. There's no doubt about it. And as a Tottenham fan, we've had enough thin. But once you're a fan, that's it. You're a fan for life. That day I became a Tottenham fan. And so I I know we love to talk about the amazing athletes that we have that play basketball or football, baseball, whatever U.S. sport we want to talk about. But when you talk about a global game of people who are in amazing shape, I'm I'm not sure you or I, Tom, would want to be out there running for one half with them, let alone two halves. And and that's or with two minutes. You no, know, they're allowed three subs for the whole game. So so eight of those players are not even leaving the pitch during the entire time out there for 90 minutes. Yeah. I, completely unrelatable, <laughs> but it's a cool thing, Bob. And much like uh, the podcast here, welcome to the arena. It's the same thing. You know, you we've got a lot of talented uh, horses that are running amazing companies around the world. And NASDAQ is one of the key players in helping them sustain what they're doing and achieving their goals. And I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. You've been such a good uh, friend of ICR and, and friend in general for a really long period of time. So, Well, thank you. But I also think that we'd be doing a disservice if I didn't make the shameless plug for how amazing ICR is and what, what you guys do for clients every day, advocating for them and how you, know, you and your two partners built this business 25 years ago, sitting, I, I remember walking up and it was sitting around a card table in a barren office and uh, where you are today after having a one of the most successful, if not the most successful consumer retail conference in every January in Florida. And just with now your new partner at, at InvestCorp, how you've been able to build this amazing business. And uh, it's a testament to you and to Chad and John in the beginning, and certainly to you and Don and the rest of your team. Well, thanks for that plug, Bob. The white envelope filled with cash is on the way. But <laughs> but seriously, thank you for, for the relationship, and hopefully we'll have you on the podcast again soon.
as a public or soon to be public company, it's critical to align with a world-class exchange because that relationship can bring all kinds of benefits to you over the long run. As you know, the IPO isn't the finish line. It's the beginning of a marathon where companies will need all the help they can get to put their best foot forward. I'd like to thank Bob McCooey of NASDAQ for joining us today. Bob is super easy to talk to, really down to earth. You can forget sometimes that he knows more about the exchanges than almost anybody. We're lucky to get his advice. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. We'll see you next time back in the arena. 